Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. At Best Western, we can't promise you the perfect family beach vacation. We can't promise that it won't rain, or that you won't get a sunburn, or that your family won't endearingly call you Lobster Mom for weeks afterward. What we can promise is a warm welcome and a comfortable room amidst all the joyful chaos. Lobster Mom. Life's a trip. Make the most of it at Best Western, with over 4,200 hotels worldwide. Hey parents, you're listening to the Project Parenthood podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nanika Kaur, clinical psychologist and respectful parenting therapist. Each week I'll introduce you to the same respectful parenting practices that I use to help parents repair and deepen connections with their children. You'll get tips for cultivating more parental self-compassion, more cooperation from your kids, and more joy, peace, and resilience in your relationship with them. In today's episode, I'm talking with Dr. Rihanna Elise Anderson, a clinical psychologist who works with Black youth and their families to dropkick racism and engage in resistance for a healthy mind, body, and spirit. You're going to hear about how to cultivate cultural pride in Black children and how to gain confidence in talking about racial bias and racism. Stick around till the end to learn about everyday ways to help your child understand challenging concepts like discrimination. Dr. Rihanna Elise Anderson is a licensed clinical psychologist and a fellow at Stanford Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences. Her scholarship addresses coping strategies to reduce race-related stress in Black families. She's currently on scholarly leave as an assistant professor in the Health Behavior and Health Education Department at the University of Michigan School of Public Health. Dr. Anderson strives to improve psychological outcomes for Black youth through culturally and contextually affirming therapeutic programs focused on racism and discrimination, effective coping and healing strategies, and community building, participation, and collaboration. One of her primary goals is to create interventions and youth centers which support the mental and physical health of Black youth in urban communities. Here's my chat with Dr. Anderson. Hi, everyone. I'm here now with licensed clinical psychologist and fellow at Stanford Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences, Dr. Rihanna Elise Anderson. Dr. Anderson, I'm so glad to have you here at Project Parenthood to shed some light on a phenomenon in Black families and perhaps all families of color in America. I'm referring to the quote-unquote talk that parents have with their kids to help prepare them for and stay safe during experiences with racism that will inevitably occur. So thanks so much for being here to talk with us about this, Dr. Anderson. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So before we jump into talking about the how-tos of talking with kids about the realities of a racialized life, can you tell us a little bit about the work you do with Black families to reduce race-related stress? 
Yeah, absolutely. So you've said it beautifully already. There's a lot of research out there on the talk and how these families are having conversations. And really, we're talking about all families, right? So Black families tend to be the ones that have the conversation the most, but we're really thinking about how all families engage in this conversation. So we've got literature around how families are engaging in it, some of the better strategies, what are the, the ways to do it. And I'm a doer. I'm somebody who thinks about action. And I was just joking with a friend right before jumping on that gerund verbs are my jam. So I love anything with an ING and on it. So I asked the question, well, what do we do with this talk? We do a lot of research and we try to do a lot of understanding on it, but what do the families then do? So my work is around how can clinicians better help families to engage in this talk? How can we help clinicians to get better engaged in the talk? And then what I'm up to right now is thinking about how can we scale up some of these strategies that we've been engaging in on a one-on-one or a, a maybe clinic level? How do we scale that up so every 10 to 19-year-old of color in the United States through something like an app? So that's what we're working on here at Stanford. Wow, an app. That's so interesting. I mean, that just, of course, as when you're talking about that group, right, that 10 to 19 group, that's an app seems like a really... <laughs> perfect way to get in touch with them. That's right. Yeah. Um, so thanks for that explanation. I'm wondering, you know, jumping right into it, beyond the science, you know, of like the facts of how melanin works, how should Black parents explain race to kids so that they develop a healthy racial identity and not end up in this demoralized place? One of the coolest pieces about the research on the talk are the different strategies that families use, quote, naturally. So what are the things, if we do no intervention at all, if we don't have a program to encourage certain talks or we don't have a manual, like what if what are families just doing naturally to talk to their young people? Those strategies often include instilling cultural pride first and foremost. And that's such a sensible way of thinking about it. If you know that the community that you're living in, the society that you're living in, it's constantly bombarding your child with negative messaging or things that they're watching that are challenging. The first thing you might want to do is say, no, no, you have a beautiful face. You have a beautiful set of curls. You have a beautiful kinky texture, like whatever it is that we want to talk about that people might disparage you for. This is what is actually beautiful. So to, to really instill a sense of pride is the first thing that we just observe families doing. And then they might talk about some of the challenges that come from that. Not everybody loves that your walk is as confident as it is or that, you know, you're wearing shirts that say you love your people. Not everyone is going to have the same viewpoint. And this is why. So instilling them with that pride first and then preparing them. Those are some of the things that we see naturally happening. And that's part of the study of the talk, what we're seeing families already doing. Wow. So what you're saying is cultural pride coming first. That's sort of naturally at baseline what families are already doing. And then they sort of go into those challenges. So yeah. when we are talking about those challenges, you know, certainly my audience loves how to's. So <laughs> I'm wondering, you know, how can Black parents help prepare kids for managing racism and microaggressions, 
racial bias, white supremacy, all of those things they have to deal with in their very young lives. How do we help them when they do encounter those things? Yeah, I always tell folks that if I had the actual factual answer to that, I'd be very rich and famous and like the world would be a much better place, right? So the how-to on this is always tricky. So I, I push back on that and say, rather than saying like, what is it explicitly that you should say? It, it really is a how quality to the types of engagements that we have with our young people. So I think of this idea of competency. So we were just talking about content when we when we talk about the cultural pride piece and then preparing for the bias that young people are going to face. That's more about the content of what families are talking about. I bring us more into the space of competency. So what's the quality of conversation that you're having with your child? How confident do you feel when you're engaging in that conversation with the child? Do you feel your stress spiking when you're talking to your child about race and racism? And if those things are making you feel less competent, we see that children are actually struggling more, even though you think you're having that conversation, you think you're doing the best job with them on the planet. If your child perceives you as less competent, or if you see yourself as as not competent when you're having those conversations, that's when we're seeing some of those negative outcomes for our young people as well, the depression, anxiety, et cetera. So the things that I encourage parents to do before we even talk about the content is to do check-ins with themselves. So the first thing I ask for you to do is just to talk with yourself. It can be a mirror, it could be your journal, but have the talk with yourself. Understand what things are coming up from your childhood that you didn't process with your parents, that you're mad at your mom for not saying to you, that you're mad at the TV for projecting onto you, like have a sense of where you are. The second thing is to think about the resources that you might need for your kiddo. So there's tons of free resources online right now at so many spaces, Embrace Race, Sesame Street, PBS Kids, so many places that I've worked on personally that have these repositories that you can grab these free resources to talk to your kiddos about. So there's no excuse there. And the third, instead of thinking you have to know every single thing to tell your child, which can be a very stressful endeavor for anybody, right? And one that's unreasonable. We don't have answers to all the things in any other category. So why would we have it about racism, right? But if you want to engage in that conversation, you have to be able to listen first. So ask your child, what have you noticed about X, Y, and Z? What has come up for you recently? I want to talk with you about race and racism, but I think it's really important to know where you're at. Talk to me about what you've noticed. Let them open up their mouths first so you have the baseline and you can figure out where do I need to go from here? What's the best route into this? Holy cow, they know a lot more than I thought that they did. So let me start at place Y instead of place X. Those are the ways that I would encourage you to become more competent so that you can reduce your stress, increase your confidence, and have skills to engage with your child more effectively. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. At Best Western, we can't promise you the perfect family beach vacation. We can't promise that it won't rain or that you won't get a sunburn or that your family won't endearingly call you lobster mom for weeks afterward. 
What we can promise is a warm welcome and a comfortable room amidst all the joyful chaos. Lobster Mom. Life's a trip. Make the most of it at Best Western with over 4,200 hotels worldwide. The days are officially getting longer, and while there may be a bit more daylight, do you still feel like there isn't enough time to do things like plan and shop for healthy meals? Hungry Root is your partner in healthy living. It's the easiest way to get fresh, high-quality groceries and simple, healthy recipes delivered to your door. Take a fun, short quiz, and Hungry Root will get to know your health goals, your tastes, the appliances you use, and more. Then, they'll build you a personalized cart with all your grocery needs for the week, along with delicious recipe recommendations to put those groceries to good use. Everything from Hungry Root follows a simple standard. It's got to taste good, be quick to make, and contain whole, trusted ingredients. Save hours planning, shopping, and cooking. Hungry Root delivers food you'll love. As a busy parent striving for healthier eating, Hungry Root has been a game changer for our family. Our box was filled with fresh, high-quality ingredients and simple recipes tailored to our tastes and preferences. One feature we particularly loved was the ability to customize our meals by swapping ingredients, making mealtime exciting and adaptable to our needs. Ordering was a breeze, and the convenience of having everything delivered to our door saved us valuable time. Hungry Root truly made our weekly meals easier and better, allowing us to enjoy nutritious and delicious dishes without the stress of planning and shopping. Right now, Hungry Root is offering Project Parenthood listeners 40% off your first delivery and free veggies for life. Just go to HungryRoot.com Parenthood to get 40% off your first delivery and get your free veggies. That's HungryRoot.com Parenthood. Don't forget to use our link so they know we sent you. Yeah, I love that last part too. This idea of letting your child lead you a little bit. You know, so often a child asks a question and we sort of jump in with a very intricate answer before sort of, I always encourage parents to say, well, what do you think before they answer the question? Um, Just to get us sort of, as you're saying, that sense of a baseline of what information do they actually need and what do they already know? And let me just, let me jump in and say, you know, I'm a former teacher, right? And I remember coming to the classroom with my fifth graders and they would be in my face like, Miss A, you got your eyebrows done? Those are new earrings, aren't they? You got those nails? Like they, they notice every single thing on me. So how would you not expect that they're missing this huge headline that just got dropped in the case of Tyree Nichols or a multi-year long protest with respect to the murder of George Floyd? Like how would we not expect them to be mindful of, impacted by, affected by this thing. They know, they notice, they have feelings about it, they have thoughts about it. So welcome them in. I love that. Ask them, welcome them into that conversation and be vulnerable enough to say, I don't know why these things keep happening. I feel mad. I was crying last night, right? Like let them know you're human too. And that we don't always have the answers to these really complex challenges in the world. I mean, so complex. And you bring up this, you know, you're sparking this idea about how parents can, you know, so often white parents are spoken to about, especially since the murder of George Floyd, this idea of being anti-racist and teaching your white child to sort of know how to manage and not the anti-blackness and sort of 
getting away from that and sort of talking about race more explicitly. But I think sometimes the assumption is made that just because people of color don't have a choice to deal with race or to interface with race, that they somehow know all of the things to say to a kid about race. And the families that I come in contact with absolutely are just as adrift as many, many white parents are. And, you know, especially for Black families who are raising their children in predominantly white spaces, sometimes it can be very challenging. You know, all of my kids' friends are white. I, you know, I'm going to tell them about racism and white supremacy. And then, you know, they're going to have all these feelings of conflict with their white friends. Mm -hmm. And what am I, what am I supposed to tell them about that? Mm -hmm. And how are they supposed to manage all of that information? I'm wondering, you know, if your child already has some internalized racism, how might a Black family help their child with these kinds of feelings and these kinds of, this kind of environment? Mm. You brought up so many nuggets and I, I want to jump on each of them, but I'm going to try to stay the task here. I think the first thing I would encourage us to say is not the if, right, if my child already has internalized racism, because from jump, even as in our maternal bodies, when our child is developing, like we know what is happening to our own bodies and the passing of traumatic energy down to our child. Like th- th- these are studied impacts that are actually happening in utero. And then from birth, where the hospitals we give birth in are different, or the care that we receive is different. I mean, literally from jump, our child is being impacted by this structural system that we have of racism. So when they're eight or nine, I would really, really want us to not think about the word if they have internalized racism, because there's no question that Anything they've experienced, even if they're the most socioeconomically well-off Black child in this country, they have already been exposed to a myriad form of racism. So that would be my first thought, is that we don't believe for ourselves that we have somehow bypassed the effects of racism because... We're either in an all-Black environment or we have taken them and given them the world with wealth and with resource and opportunity. There's racism everywhere. It is ubiquitous in the United States. So that's, that would be my first thought. The thing that a lot of parents do to prevent themselves from having the talk with their children is create this narrative that, well, maybe it'll impact their relationships with their friends, so I'm not going to tell them. Or maybe it'll be the thing that exposes them to racism, and then they'll start seeing it. And then I would have jacked them up for life. They, there are so many stories that we come up with as adults and parents to shield our children, quote unquote, from having the talk. But really, it's shielding ourselves from our own fears, our own inability, our own stress around having it. So... With all those caveats out the way, (laughs) having conversations that are honest and open with your child early can help to absolve them of those depressive or anxious symptoms that come up when they experience discrimination. Not if, when they experience discrimination, when they start to notice racism, they will have questions. And if they can't process it or if they don't trust that you are someone that they can talk to because you've never brought it up before and they must think that it's their fault, so they start to internalize it, that shows up as depression and anxiety. And we don't want that for our children. We want them to be happy and healthy. So let's do the thing that is healthful for them and expose them slowly 
but truthfully and factually to these things that are possible in their environment and are likely already happening that they just haven't had the language for. What you're talking about, this idea that they, of course, have and will experience some kind of discrimination. I think that there are many families, you know, I just recently had an interview that I was doing with a therapist who is a transracial adoptee herself, and just talking about being a, a white parent and raising black children. I think that so many even white parents who are raising black children feel that, you know, the umbrella of whiteness that they are under will keep them safe from discrimination. And that's just so not the case. So I think it is important to really have a realistic view of these things and not just that sort of Pollyanna kind of idea that I can protect them somehow from dealing with it. It's such a great point. And just briefly on that that topic, discrimination happens because of, as you said earlier, the melanin, the, the phenotype of the child. So it's nothing about this external environment or anything that we're doing that can protect them. People look at each other and they discriminate. And that, that is the way that that behavioral form of racism plays out. We make snap judgments. We stereotype based on how we perceive someone. Tamir Rice, who was 12 years old and playing as 12-year-olds do in the park, was discriminated against because of the perception that these police officers had of him and action was taken immediately. So I'm bringing that up because people aren't necessarily looking to the parent of who that person is. They're not looking at the ID to see if that's a private school or not. They're not looking at the uniform. They're not looking at these things. They're looking at your child's face. They're looking at their hair. They're looking at other markers. And they're saying that to me, represents a Black child, and that means X, Y, and Z. And it comes with all this stuff. And I'm going to say and do the following things because that's what I do to Black children, adults, whatever. Your whiteness will not protect your child. Your neighborhood will not protect your child. And in fact, sometimes those things amplify. This is a monster system that we're fighting against, and it's going to take all of us, including, again, white families talking to their white children about perpetrating these events, that are, that's going to be the way that we stop it. Right. We can't not talk about it in order to fix it, right? That's and right. just ignore it and hope that it goes away. This year, the theme of Black History Month is Black resistance. And I'm thinking about these interviews I'm doing this month as, you know, ways to be resisting the, the big monster, right? How can we resist this, this beast, right? And as parents are trying to raise Black kids who see themselves as more than an oppressed person, how do we impress upon Black kids the importance of Black resistance? Not solely Black people as oppressed people, but, you know, how do we engage them in the idea of activism? You know, one of the, the things I read about when I was reading about the theme of Black history this month was all the ways in which people from all different walks of life, librarians, doctors, bankers, all the people were resisting in, all, in the way that they could from their sphere of influence. That's right. And I think that that's so important. And I'm wondering, you know, what do you have to say about that as we are talking about how to speak to our kids about how to keep themselves safe in this system? I love this topic. I think about it, talk about it, write about it all the time. Uh, we, we're writing a paper right now on this exact question because so many people use the word resilient when it comes to Black children. And oftentimes that's an individual level trait where we're asking the child herself, 
to be steel, not S-T-I-L-L, but steeled, S-T-E-E-L-E-D, in the face of these incredible challenges. Withstand, persist, hold on, have grit, like do all these things to weather the storm. And we see plenty of examples. And frankly, I think any Black person alive in America is, is showing resilience in the face of this demonstrable monster. But what resistance allows us to do is to think about those interlocking forces that have to come together to ultimately ward off what is being thrown at our child. So we're talking about it in the paper that we're writing up as this armor, this this coat. And if you think about the Wakanda costume used in Wakanda Forever, you're thinking about the way that Shuri was describing this kinetic energy that's being built up in the costume. So the bullets that are being shot at that costume are now charging up that costume and allowing the costume to be the thing that pushes back or has the strength against the things that are coming toward it. So that costume for me and my colleagues are the parents, are the teachers, are the people around that child that says, no, no, you're not getting to our kid. We don't want them to be resilient. We want them to be able to stand on their own two feet and not have to be blown back by these shots taken at them or these words or these affronts or any of these things. Like We're the ones that are going to protect that child from any of those things. And that's going to start from when they wake up in our house to as they're walking down the street, the neighbors that are seeing them, to when they get to school, those teachers, to the store owner who now understands their practices and takes down the the hoodie sign so that the kid doesn't feel triggered every time they walk through the door. It is the interconnecting ability for adults to say, if we create a better community for you, young person, then you don't have to be the one to withstand all of this. So that's what I think about when we talk about resistance. It's our ability as adults to say, we've already not allowed our children to be children. We've already put them through a generation of stress and trauma. How can we now let them lead happy, healthy lives without experiencing that trauma anymore? So you're talking about one of the things that I talk about in so many different topics on this show, the idea of changing the environment rather than mm-hmm. changing the, the human. Yeah, right? I love that. The, the, the environment around us is what needs to change so much. It's not so much that, you know, black people just need to be more respectful when they no. are stopped by the police. No. Or maybe police just need to be less racist either way. Right. Like, yeah, we think about the system of policing. And I know a lot of people pick on policing as a system, but we need to understand historically, if that system was created to police Black bodies and to get them back into the hands and the care of their enslaved, like when we're thinking about the history of that, and then we think about the power and we think about the weaponry, we think about all of these elements that have not changed and and frankly have only amplified over time, you have to ask yourself, like, what is it that we could be doing to change that ecology? If we change the policies, we change the procedures of that system, would we see fatality the way that we do? In schools, if we understood that the people who were graduating from public schools were supposed to go into service industries, and that was the extent of the the expectation of where these young people were supposed to go. Well, we'd understand it was designed to keep a a 
status uh, quote lower than than folks in these other types of schools, right? Like you you understand the historical element to it. So yes, I'm asking us to or really demanding us to change this system, this ecology, this web around our children so that we are thoughtful about how history, how these other elements play a role in what we're seeing today. It's sort of in the same way as we're talking about sort of healing from trauma, the idea, one of the ideas is to know how the trauma you experienced impacts you today and how you know, how the person you are right now has been impacted by that and then making a decision. How do I want to, knowing that information, how do I want to move forward now? Yes. Um, I can sort of keep doing the things I've been doing that are maybe coping strategies that are not helping me, or I can choose a new behavior, something that leads to more health and peace in my life. Yeah. And this sounds like a really similar thing. Like we can change small things but those small things can make a very large difference yeah. over over time. And really it starts with understanding the impact that the original the original crimes yeah. still have on us today. Yeah. The way that I often put it too is, you know, how is it working for you? So I love this idea of data that you're bringing up. It's something that I ask all about. You can't, and maybe it's a dork in me. I'm a researcher, like it is what it is, but like we can't make change or know that change needs to be made if we don't have any sense of our baseline, if we don't know how well we're sleeping, how well we're eating, if we feel happy or sad, like we won't know to make any changes. So once you get that data, you have your baseline, then you can ask, how is this working for me? And if it ain't, if it ain't working for you, well, if all the things that you just said, my eight cups of coffee, my like, you know, eating this bag of potato chips, my falling asleep middle of the day, or in the case of, of racism, you know, just pretending like this thing doesn't exist or maybe taking a different route to work that's adding 30 minutes, me not bringing something up with my employer, but coming home and unleashing it on my family. If those things aren't working, the question is, what would work better? Can we give that strategy a try? Can we test it? Can we look back at our data? Is that improving? It's not. Let's give something else a try. So it's all about many experiments until you find the thing that is working best for you. So as we're coming to the end of our time together, what's one myth about talking to Black kids about race that you want to clear up? We don't see it as often with, with Black kids, but it is something that comes up with families writ large, that they are too young to understand about the things that we preach need to be talked about. And what I love is seeing the research around having the talk. One of my my colleagues who talks about it when you are combing hair. So like at age four or five, just the act of spending time and doing hair together as you're again, talking about how beautiful this hair texture is and the things that we have to do that might look a little different than what you're seeing on TV with someone else. Like these are the the steps of care that we have to take for our hair. Those types of things that parents are engaging in are forms of socialization, even at that age. So just being developmentally mindful is what I would encourage parents to do. I say that you would not take a Shakespearean novel and try to hand that over to your kindergartner and say, get to reading, right? Like you, you know that there are ways to break down materials or to find the right materials or to make it work. You know, there are ways to do that. Race is not something that we should 
be putting in a whole separate category just because we think it's too hard. It's a tough conversation because we make it tough. So let's make it easier. Let's figure out the way to have that conversation so that your kiddo understands it. You think about, I always talk about Starburst, right? So everybody knows when you open up that pack of Starburst that the yellow ones are just nasty and you put them to the side and nobody likes the yellow Starburst, right? Like, it, is that not, are we, are facts, right? Okay, so it's facts. She's laughing. It's facts. Okay. So <laughs> I'm just you, laughing because um, we, I just came across, a, um, my kid just came across a banana lollipop and in like the sea of lollipops and was like, what, why? What is this? Just, why? I don't understand why. What is this? <laughs> exactly. And you're, so your kid gets it, like they get it. So, um, you know, the, we have preferences. We There are things that we like. We sort all the time. We think about what, you know, tastes better, what feels better, what looks better to us. So that's a form of discrimination. And if you can think about just talking to your kiddo about things that you've observed them liking and not liking, that's an entree point. Like you're, you're right there. Right. Um, and you because can, some people don't like banana doesn't mean bananas are inherently bad. Okay. But they are. They, <laughs> okay. This is another story for another day, but it, these are facts that they are. And the lemon flavor is also bad. So just, I'm just saying there, <laughs> but no, but yeah, same, same point that we definitely want to give people that ability to, to have their preference and then to, to talk about, even if a whole bunch of people don't like that, it still doesn't mean that. Right. So using, those really cool metaphors or analogies to get your point across is one of the ways that we can make it more developmentally friendly. Mm-hmm. So kids aren't really too young. You just have to speak their language, That's, right? What I love is the it. language of the things that they are interested in and understand already? That's right. That's perfect. Yeah. So thank you so much, Dr. Anderson. It's been a pleasure having you here at Project Parenthood. Thanks so much for your time and for sharing your expertise with us. Thank you so much. What a pleasure and joy. I appreciate it so much. I hope that's helpful. You can learn more about Dr. Anderson's work at www.rianaelyse.com and follow her on Twitter at Rihanna Elise, R-I-A-N-A-E-L-Y-S-E. You can learn more about my work with parents at www.brooklynparenttherapy.com and follow me on Instagram at BKParents. That's B-K-P-A-R-E-N-T-S. If you have more questions about helping Black children understand racial bias or any other parenting questions or stories, leave me a message at 646-926-3243. And be sure to let me know if it's okay to use your voice on the show. Or send an email to parenthood at quickanddirtytips.com. And don't forget to subscribe to Project Parenthood on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Catch you next week. Project Parenthood is a quick and dirty tips podcast. It's audio engineered by Dan Firebend with script editing by Adam Cecil. Our podcast and advertising operations specialist is Morgan Christensen. Our digital operations specialist is Holly Hutchings. Our marketing and publicity assistant is Davina Tomlin. And our intern is Cameron Lacey. Best Western, we can't promise you the perfect family beach vacation. We can't promise that it won't rain, or that you won't get a sunburn, or that your family won't endearingly call you Lobster Mom for weeks afterward. What we can promise is a warm welcome and a comfortable room amidst all the joyful chaos 
Lobster Mom. Life's a trip. Make the most of it at Best Western with over 4,200 hotels worldwide. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave.